0: Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written now over three dozen cookbooks. Our latest is the Instant Air Fryer Bible, all about how to cook simple and easy food, in an air fryer, particularly in the ones made by Instant Brands, the Vortex and the Omni, although you can use it for any air fryer. We're not talking about air fryer in this episode of the podcast. Instead, we're going to be talking about foods that make us and maybe you happy. We've got our typical one-minute cooking tip. Bruce is interviewing Maya Kaimal, who we've known for I don't, I don't even know. Twenty, 20 years? years, twenty years, not a long time. Bruce is interviewing cookbook author and entrepreneur, food entrepreneur Maya Kaimal, and we want to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started.
1: We all eat food to make us happy, but there's a difference between eating food that makes you happy and using food to block
0: sadness. Yeah, I think this is a big one. And we think about this a lot lately. Um, because there's a way in which when you say comfort food, what you mean is food that you shove in your mouth so you don't feel sad. So people think about macaroni and cheese and ice cream. And the, uh, listen, I love macaroni and cheese and I love ice cream. But uh, that is different than a kind of food that can make you happy. It may be momentarily happy, but I don't know about you, but I always feel guilty after oh. I eat uh, half a pint of ice cream or a whole
1: half, I was about to say, who eats half a pint? Well, if I you're, try to. If you're eating ice cream or mac and cheese to cover sadness, in the end, it only leads to more sadness.
0: Yeah, and if you don't know, there's actually a biochemical process that's going on here. The food naturally, especially food that you enjoy, naturally causes a dopamine reaction in the brain. That's that pleasure chemical that you release whenever you feel good, when you feel happy. (laughs) We really used to drink sex. It's that very happiness chemical. Well, the thing is, a lot of these foods cause a dopamine rush, although it washes away pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So that's why you feel really good when you're eating mac and cheese. And then 30 minutes later, you're like, what did I just do?
1: Yeah, but there's another way that food also makes you happy. Food flavor, smells, all of that brings on sense memory. And if you're not familiar with sense memory, it's when you smell something or you taste something and you immediately have this not only memory of being at the place where you may have first tasted it, whether it's your grandmother's house or summer camp, but you actually physically have that same feeling you had when you were there. You can imagine being there. It almost like time travel right yeah
0: yeah 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 and what we would like to do is we would like to encourage you to connect with the foods that make you happy and foods from your past that make you happy and here's one for me when I was a kid I grew up in a very the uh, stereotypical middle class mid 20th century family and we didn't have a lot of money we had all the money we needed but we didn't have a lot of money and so we ate out once a week and my parents had this thing that I got to go along with them, or when my brother came along 11 years after me, we got to grow with them, but still, I got to go out with them for dinner, basically whenever they went out to eat. So we would eat at the steakhouse in Dallas, Bavarian, (laughs) Bavarian with an O, because it was a steakhouse, get it? Bavarian Steakhouse. And we would go to Bavarian Steakhouse, and at the end of the meal, we would always split the apple dumpling, and it was, you know, the, the, the baked apple wrapped in pastry with the whipped cream all over it. And I swear I can. Uh, there's something about that that I just can taste it, feel it, know mm. it. When I have apple dumplings, I'm like,
1: oh. you're a kid again. That's and you're me that... as a
0: kid, and I'm splitting it with my parents. And, and... you're a
1: happy place. It, that yeah. puts you in a really happy place. Now that's true. Not all sense memories are happy, right? We can no. we can eat something or smell something that triggers a bad memory, but <laughs> mostly when it comes to food, you're talking about good memories, right? I mean, mostly. Mostly. I mean, mostly. I I didn't grow up in a house. With where i was forced to eat things so if i didn't like something i didn't have to eat it so there are very few bad food memories for me yeah. it's not like you know you're gonna sit here and eat that until it's gone or and you sit there for a week because you're just not yeah, eating it. yeah
0: we, we, we we've talked about this um bruce grew up in uh not kosher but jewish home in new york city and he has a very different relationship to bacon than I do. I grew up in a home where bacon was a twice to three times a week thing. So when bacon is made, I do not feel the need to eat every piece of bacon <laughs> and not leave any left ever since I'm like, oh, it's bacon. But Bruce has a kind of unbelievable overreaction well, to bacon. Well, I do. I
1: love bacon. But when it comes to... Trafe from pork. The food you that trafe is? is forbidden food, right? right? So in a kosher home, that would be all pork, that would be all shellfish, fish that don't have mollusks. scales and fins, mollusks, mollusks or trafe. And animals have to be ruminants, and they have to have cloven hooves. So pigs don't fit that category, so you don't eat pig if you're kosher. So we're glad to know that giraffes do. It's so good. So So there you go. You can make a giraffe for Passover. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, So the food that I have a sense of memory of that is incredible is smoked ham. And the Mm. reason that Mm. has a sense memory for me, Mm. the first time I ever tasted it, oh, I was maybe 11 or 12, we were visiting a cousin on Long Island in Stony Brook, Mm. and we were there with my grandmother who didn't keep a kosher home because my grandfather liked to eat bacon, but her idea of kosher was a separate pan for the bacon. (laughs) But she did order all the rest of her meat from a kosher butcher. So we go out, and it's his family, right? It's so my grandfather's family we're visiting. We walk in. The intellectuals from they Kiev. Were, they were from Kiev. They were they were your rich, educated intellectuals from mm. from Kiev. Mm. And there was a smoked, spiral sliced ham in the middle of the table for the buffet. Now I was like, what is that? Now my grandmother like blanched and became horrified, and I think she, in my mind she had a seizure. But I know she she didn't. did not have a seizure. No, but she did have a fit. She threw a. Ten- okay, your grandmother
0: made bacon for your grandfather.
1: It didn't matter; it wasn't ham. Ham is the most <laughs> Christian of all your animal products. Well, probably I don't know. More than, we all ate bacon. All my friends ate bacon, but nobody ate ham. Ham was know. Jesus. I, yeah, I ham know. was Easter. <laughs> Ham was the resurrection. It is. Well, yeah, that's true. If you're eating ham, you might as well put a cross up in your living room. (laughs) I mean, it's just... (laughs) Yes, well,
0: that is all true. (laughs) That is all very true. So that was my... I don't have this relationship with ham Well, my
1: mother and grandmother were so angry. And I went up and I tasted some of this forbidden meat. And oh, my God, I I was then angry. I was so angry at my mother and grandmother for not introducing me to smoked ham before this, because quite honestly, they didn't introduce me to smoked brisket well, either. I didn't learn that till I met you, Mark.
0: Okay, so uh, now uh, it's my turn, and I'm gonna say something <laughs> about my childhood. When I was a little kid, I used to be taken over to my grandparents for babysitting when my parents sang in the Christian church (laughs) choir where they were probably serving ham and bacon during choir practice. So um, my parents went to choir practice and and, um, I would be dropped off at my grandparents and It inevitably happened that my grandmother would make a frozen Pepperidge Farm turnover, Mm. and we would sit in front of the TV, and these are console TVs with tubes. We would sit in front of the TV with tray tables and eat uh, turnovers with ice cream, with vanilla ice cream scooped into the hot centers. And I still to this day, occasionally, I want to go get a turnover because it's just... It's part of, I don't know, it's, in, it's woven into my DNA at this point. Yeah. I want that, because it reminds me of being that little kid at my grandparents with the tray table, and I'm sure my feet didn't even touch the floor, and I was so excited to get my turnover and watch, here's how old I am, Red Skelton.
1: <laughs> so that's how old I am. Nobody so. knows who that is. No,
0: no one listening to this knows who Red Skelton is. Well,
1: by the time I was in college, um, my taste had changed, and I, I had made some friends who considered themselves foodies, but I don't know that we'd still consider them foodies, but they loved to experiment, and none of us had any money. And we used to eat Indian food on East 6th Street in the Mm. East Village in New York, which Mm. was like the row of Indian restaurants, and I'm convinced to this day there was one trough out in the back that every restaurant went and dug whatever they were serving out of because it was the same gloppy, greasy food in every restaurant. But it was good, and... We used to go there, and it meant a lot that I had this group of friends and that we liked to go go. there. There So every time I eat any kind of Indian food, to me that's a comfort because it reminds me of that time. It sends me right back to being 22 years old, to going down to the East Village with my friends, To having a great time without much money. Yeah, and we 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 want to encourage you to do this. To think back
0: to moments in your food life, Uh in which you have an unbelievably pleasant memory. And I want to tell you another way that you can find foods that make you happy. And this particularly relates to me maybe more so than Bruce, is I am always searching for the new. I am Mm -hmm. always wanting something new. I've got a rule of the last 10 years. I don't want to travel to places other than to see my family. I don't want to travel to places I've been before. I always want to go new. I want to see new. Maybe it's part of aging. I don't know. But food traditions are new to me. Are, For example, curries, which Bruce <laughs> just brought up. And I have developed a deep and passionate love of curry in my late middle age because it's new because it's not anything I grew up with in Texas. And I didn't know about Raida. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know. I knew <laughs> curry powder as like that yellow turmeric turmeric. <laughs> I knew curry powder as that yellow turmeric-based stuff that had no flavor because it had sat in my mother's pantry for 10 years. I I didn't know anything about curry. At
1: least your mother had curry powder in the house.
0: Well, I'm sure we didn't have garam masala.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, it was there for 10 years because she
0: never used it. No, 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 we didn't. Occasionally, my mother would make something called shrimp curry. And as far as I can tell, it was the little—remember those little baby salad shrimp that they used to sell? It was the little baby salad shrimp in a flour-thickened milk gravy with curry powder in it, and then she would pour the bag of little shrimp in it, and we would eat that over rice, and we called that shrimp curry. That well, is, it is. I mean, uh, come on, that is nothing that. was about
1: authentic that. to your family.
0: No, no, it wasn't authentic <laughs> to anything. So, uh, I think that, that also part of finding comfort foods is finding new foods and finding new ways to cook and new ways to reinvigorate what you don't
1: you think so i do think so so share with us the foods that make you happy whether they bring up memories from your childhood or from your adulthood or from last week come to our facebook group That's cooking Meek. with bruce and mark and just share with us we're going to share some more stories and pictures there of foods that make us happy we look forward to seeing what's making you happy
0: Before we get to our next segment of the podcast, let me tell you that Bruce and I have a newsletter. I will admit to you right now that that newsletter hasn't gone out in a couple weeks. My life got a little crazy with the new book we're publishing this fall in edits for it. So I wasn't able to send out a newsletter, but we do have a newsletter. And if you would like to subscribe to that, you can go to our website, bruceandmark.com. On the splash page, when you arrive, just scroll down and there's a way to sign up for the newsletter. And let me just say that I have blocked my knowing what your name or your email address is, so it can't be sold. And I've locked the account with MailChimp, so it can't be sold. So let me just say that if you would like to receive the newsletter, there's a clear and easy way to do it on the website, bruceandmark.com. And once you get the newsletters, if you ever want out, you just unsubscribe at the bottom of a newsletter and you're out again. Um, that would be a great way to support our otherwise unsupported podcast. Okay, up next, as is traditional, our second segment, our one-minute Cooking tip.
1: What is it? Remember that food continues to cook after it leaves the stove. Oh. <laughs> so mm-hmm. err on the side of mm-hmm. undercooking ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Vegetables taste better with a little crispiness. Pasta's better when it's mm-hmm. al dente. So pull things off the stove a little ahead of time to avoid mushy vegetables, overcooked pasta, well-done meat, or rubbery eggs. And I think we're back to Bacon.
0: Bacon, <laughs> bacon is a prime candidate for something that continues to cook off the stove. And you don't like it to be shardy. No, I don't either. And, but I don't like it to be limp either. But when it comes, even when it comes out of the grease and onto a plate or a paper towel to drain it or however you do it, when it comes there, it's still hot and it's still cooking a it's still little frying. bit. Still
1: frying, yep. It's still sizzling. If it's still sizzling, it's still cooking. Yeah, it's really important to remember
0: that you take things off just slightly before you think they're done. Up next in our interview segment of the podcast, Bruce interviews our longtime friend. It's hard to believe we've known her that long. Our longtime friend, Maya Kaimal, she owns a food business, but as well is a cookbook author. And she's talking about her brand new book, Indian Flavor, Every Day.
1: Today, I'm speaking with Indian food expert, Maya Kaimal, I met Maya 20 years ago when she wrote her first book, Savoring the Spice Coast of India. Since then, she started her own Indian food company, Maya Kaimal Foods, offering sauces, rices, lentils, and all the products you need to make Indian food at home easier. And look for her products in your local supermarket or online. But we're back today to talk about her new book, Indian Flavor Every Day. Welcome, Maya.
2: Thank you so much.
1: I want to start with the image Of Indian food. You claim in the opening of your new book that you don't think Indian food will ever have a bust out moment, but that it's moving more mainstream in terms of the way Americans are choosing to eat.
2: Can you talk about that a little bit? I say that because I've been at this for a while and I do hear a lot of people talk about, you know, feeling daunted by the cuisine. And and it's still happening, you know, after 20 some years of of trying to sell people Indian food or or teach people about Indian food. So I it so it's it's real. So I think that that is part of what keeps it from just like going huge and mainstream for people. There's the intimidation factor and the seasoning is, you know, it's very it's it's full and bold and it doesn't have sugar in it like some other southeast asian cuisines that makes it a little kind of easier to love it's like thai food you know is is just as spicy but it's you know but there's palm sugar and other you know and so it's it's a little easier i think on the western palate so so indian food has tons to offer but it's just getting people to see that that in fact it actually really fits what people Desire right now, which is low sugar, which is plant-based protein, which is flavor exploration. So, you know, so I think it continues to gain a following more and more all the time. Uh, We know that to be true. We can see it. We see data about like you know household penetration of Indian food growing over over time. So more people are buying Indian food, which is awesome. So I'm just going to keep plugging away at trying to help people. (laughs) fit it into their lives well you've
1: been helping bring the flavors of indian foods to american tables for years with your line of sauces and your indian ingredients but your new book indian flavor every day is not about shortcuts um so how do you address the fact that so many people find indian cooking to be so intimidating
2: yeah i mean it's i get it right it is it's involved to make Indian food from scratch. There's a spectrum, you know, it can be like super, super complicated or there's there's kind of a, a slightly simpler end of the range. So I try to focus on that part of the range, right? It's like, you know, maybe you just need a couple of, ingredients like you only need some turmeric and cayenne in your brussels sprouts with a little bit of ginger you know like how do indians simply do some of their their dishes their dolls their their vegetables but i also think that breaking it down is important like where the flavor comes from right like you know showing people that you can master a couple of techniques and then you kind of know where you're going and that's the thing about cooking right it's like when you start to cook, you kind of want to know where you're going, mm-hmm. and that's when you don't need a recipe, and you just kind of, you can just flow, and most people can't flow with Indian food. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to help with, is that, you know, if you if you know that by popping some, you know, mustard and cumin seeds in hot oil, you're going to end up with this really beautifully flavored oil, and then you can build on top of that, and, and you've done something simple, but yet, like you know really additive to your cooking. So that's that's where I'm going with it is like get master a few techniques and then it's it won't feel as intimidating.
1: Yeah, we're going to come back to that technique of popping those those seeds in the oil cuz that is very similar to what happens in European cooking where you saute onions and garlic as the base of everything and what you're yeah. doing here are taking whole spices and frying them in oil before you begin.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's and, and then you start, you know, layering on top of that. But that that's the beginning point and, and that's kind of a real trademark of Indian cooking that you just you don't see in many other cuisines.
1: Well, I'm gonna jump right to that then. You this is something you write about in the book called Tarka, which involves mm-hmm. the spices and the oil, and you say it can be a first step in a recipe or a last, So tell me in more detail, what is it and how important is it to creating authentic Indian flavors?
2: It's very important to creating authentic Indian flavors. You know, each region will put slightly different things into their tarka. I was raised on a lot of South Indian cooking. So it, there it's still use like maybe coconut oil or some kind of an oil and they'll use mustard seeds and curry leaves and dried red chilies. And that's that's a South Indian tarka. But in the North, you might start with ghee and use uh, cumin seeds. Anyway, um, probably putting a little, uh, maybe some turmeric and some cayenne in it or some red chili at the end. So, you know, they could, it, it shifts in flavor, but the point about it being either a first or last is um, kind of key because... it's a first step when you're making more of a dry curry, right? So you need to stir fry your ingredients in, in something. And, It's a last step when you already have something saucy, right? And so it could be a dal. It could be like a South Indian coconut milky stew. um, And then you're going to heat that oil in a separate vessel and then drizzle it over, kind of like you would drizzle olive oil, you know, an Italian food, right? It's just a, it's that finishing touch. And what you've hopefully done is put curry leaves into that oil where they get to just like bloom with flavor and and that just adds an incredible aroma to the dish
1: let's talk about curry leaves for a second everybody Mm -hmm. knows ginger garlic cilantro and chilies as being integral to indian food and they're readily available but what is a curry leaf And what can we do if we can't find fresh curry leaves where we live?
2: Yeah, so fresh curry leaves are, they grow on bushes in Southeast Asia. And most people in, especially the Southern part of India, it's more tropical and it's sort of, you know, like green all year round. They, yeah, just kind of go in the backyard and pull some off a bush and, you know, strip them off the stem and and they're amazing and they're um they're part of the citrus family and there is a little bit of a citrus kind of note to them kind of a little i don't know i think a little bit grapefruity or you know a little a little bitter but um herbaceous too but and they're rather they're stiff but not as stiff as a bay leaf So the best way to get the flavor from them is to is this dropping them in oil and letting them letting that flavor diffuse into the oil, you can use them fresh, too, but you get more from them when you when you capture their essence in the oil it's a very distinctive flavor and and smell particularly of, of south indian cooking and you know what if you can't get it it's fine it, it it won't taste it won't have that next layer of flavor but growing up we never had fresh curry leaves my father's from south india that he would use bay leaves and you know like one or two or not a ton but you know just for like a little more flavor to the oil so per, you can make delicious food without them, but it will just be that much more kind of exciting mm-hmm. if you can find them. And, you know, they're starting to be available in some health food stores, even like specialty stores. We have one here in the Hudson Valley called Adams and they're starting to, you know, it's like an Italian family, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's Italian, but it's a it's like a family kind of chain, small chain of, of nice upstate markets and they are carrying, carrying curry leaves. So. Um, I would say ask your, ask your grocer, you know, if they would stock them and, um, and they just might, because they are available. So
1: Indian food also has a reputation of being dairy heavy. Uh, and mm. most of the recipes in your book are dairy free or can be easily adjusted. And do, first of all, do you agree with that statement that Indian food is dairy heavy? Well, because you're, you're giving me the shake of the head, like you don't believe that. Well,
2: Okay so here's the thing this is this is back to this uh, there's a real difference between north indian and south indian and that okay. that you know and those are incredibly broad <laughs> subject headings right which are so much more nuanced than that um that it's not really fair to just divide the country into two however <laughs> It is true that in the north, like the climate wise and um landscape wise like it's better for raising cattle like it's you've got more open plains and you know they're they're raising that as we know Indians don't prefer to eat beef, but they use, you know, they will use the cow for all the things that the cow can produce for them. You know, it's like getting, you know, ghee and obviously milk and cream and yogurt and paneer. Like there's just, so that's very, very important in North India. Now in the South, you have, it's just so full of coconut. Trees that coconut milk tends to be the replacement for dairy coconut oil is used instead of ghee right coconut meat is grated and thickens the curries Um, so it's really a regional difference. And my orientation, as I mentioned, is towards the South. So that's sort of my go-to before I reach for the cream, I reach for the the coconut milk. So yes, it's true that a lot of Indian food that we eat in this country Mm -hmm. is dairy heavy, because most many restaurants are following that kind of formatted menu that happens to lean North Indian. But if you were, you know, if if you were to travel around India, you would come across a lot of non-dairy Indian food.
1: Before we talk more details about some of the recipes, let's talk about chilies and their burn. I mean, not all Indian food is fiery, right? I mean, it has a reputation of being hot food, but it doesn't have to be. But in the book, you get this great tip for testing out chilies to see whether they're too hot for you before you cook them. Why don't you talk about chilies?
2: So I look for like the sort of finger size chilies in the grocery stores. So Serranos are are generally the the what what I'm able to find. Um and the closest to what I, I grew up eating and what my family uses in India. So um, you know, you can use a jalapeno, it won't be as spicy. Um, you can use a Thai chili, it will be even more spicy. But, um, so you, so I give you some tips about how to adjust depending on what you, you can buy. This is what my grandmother and my father would do is just, um, so all the heat, most is concentrated at the top of the chili, the stem end. And it's in that pith. It's in that white part. Now it's also in the seeds, but it's but people think the seeds are the hottest part, and they're not. It's the pith. So what what you can do is you can slice off the top end, just below the the, the stem, and expose that white pithy part and the and the seeds too, and just just like swipe your finger across that and t- tap it on your tongue. And you can tell like in a nanosecond, like, okay, it's really hot. Or if you don't get it, then you're like, oh, wait, is it, you know, did I do that right? Like you do it again and then you know you have a mild one. So it's a, it's, it's one of those ways that you don't have to ignite your tongue on fire just to find out whether your chili's hot. You can just, just get a little sample and you'll know.
1: Earlier in this conversation, you talked about how you wanted to explore some of the simpler ways. Of bringing Indian flavors to an American table to get people okay with the techniques. And you have a recipe in the book for garlicky tarka broccoli. So we talked about Mm. tarka and heating up the oil. How do you use this technique with a simple vegetable to turn it into something so memorable? Tell me more about the dish.
2: Yeah. Well, so this is, you know, we eat a lot of broccoli in my family. My kids like it. My husband loves it. So and I just can't bear to do steamed broccoli. I just, you know, I won't do it. <laughs> it's like, no, we have to get more interesting than that. It just so, so I'm always sort of fiddling around. What can I do? We can roast it and we can fry it and we can do all these things. So this was my, like, this is my Indian riff on it, which is a, which is just, a stir fry, but but um because broccoli can be you know kind of thick stemmed and take a while to cook, I found that that starting I want to make it garlicky because I like garlic and broccoli. But I found that starting with the tarka with the garlic, the garlic would get too browned and burned if if I did that first and then added the broccoli and cooked it. So I decided, okay, we'll just cook the broccoli, and then basically sort of. Fry and then steam it, kind of as the, you know you would in a Chinese wok. And then once it's tender, do the tarka step in a separate little frying pan. So you can put the mustard seeds, cumin seeds. I like to add these um, nigella seeds, these little black, um, slightly bitter but really nice seeds, and then uh, sliced garlic, and fry that till it's till it's nice and the, and uh, the garlic's browned. And then you pour that over your broccoli. So and then you toss it all together and and heat it through. So super simple idea, just that I kind of in, you know, like reversed the tarka method for a stir fry and did it at the end so that everything cooked at the right speed.
1: It sounds absolutely delicious and easy. And mm-hmm. other things that really caught me, I, I love veggie burgers, and I'm always looking for new ways to do them. and you don't disappoint. Tell me what a potato bonda burger is please?
2: Uh this is one of my favorites. Uh okay, so Indians have a lot of really great street food snacks that are very, you know, potato based and very starchy, right? And Indians have no fear of like carbohydrates which mm-hmm. I love. And so they have different there are different versions of um of potato burgers, aloo tiki burgers, you know, is like basically a fried mashed, you know, potato deep fried and then in a burger. So this is, this is the a, a South Indian spin on that because bonda are a South Indian, like potato snack. That's a like a ball of mashed potato that has this great seasoning in it which is a tarka seasoning it's got the mustard seeds and onions and um and, and cumin seeds in there and it's and chilies and you mix that into the mashed potato and in south india you would take that ball and you would deep fry it um but i decided to change it up a little bit and just make the potato into a burger into a veggie burger um and then And then just, yeah, just like cook it like you would a burger in a pan, make it nice and crispy and you don't have to go through the whole deep frying thing. So it's not quite as like heavy and then serve it on a brioche bun with like maybe some cilantro chutney, some pickled red onions. You know, I have recipes for both of those. You could put a spicy ketchup on there, you know, just dress it like you would a burger, but it's got... It's got tons of flavor, so it's uh, I'm I'm loving that one. It
1: Sounds fabulous, and you don't need the French fries because you got you the potatoes right in there. No, <laughs> so, you don't. <laughs> Maya, I'm not used to seeing pork dishes on Indian menus when I go out to eat, but you offer up a pork vindaloo that looks amazing. But first, I want
2: to take one step back and say, is pork eaten much in India? So you find it in um, places where the Portuguese were colonizers and goa is one of those places and you know the portuguese were really you know very active um in india as you know for the spice trade vasco da gama came there in 1498 goa was their colony and so they had they were catholic they ate meat and they loved pork and they used uh, in this this dish vindaloo is a is a very specific goan portuguese dish which um the the name means um, means garlic and vinegar and those are two really key ingredients in this so so having vindaloo made with pork is a is a quite a typical thing that um in in india because it has these roots going back to the Portuguese creating it and making it with the things that they like. So they were using some Indian ingredients, but they were, but the main ingredient, you know, pork was what they loved.
1: And Vindaloo has a reputation of being really fiery. Isn't that necessarily
2: so? Yeah. Hot and sour. um, The two, because of the vinegar, it's also like, so not, not just pure heat, but kind of a complex heat. Um, So yes, lots of chilies, different forms of chilies, fresh chilies, cayenne, dried chilies, black pepper. So you have like a, a really nice layered heat effect from Vindaloo. But yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, it should, in my opinion, the heat should never be out of balance with the other things, but just Um, because you have the sourness, it can take more heat because those play off each other really nicely.
1: And you have a lot of desserts in your book that are not terribly traditional Indian sweets. And you discussed that in the book and they're more a fusion of Western style desserts with an Indian flavor. found them fascinating. What are your two favorites and why?
2: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. This was a fun chapter to work on because I, I mean, I like Indian desserts, but I know they're qu- they're on the sweet side for a lot of Americans, and they're you know texturally uh, you know different and sort of like sugar syrups and things like that. It's, um, they don't resemble American desserts, and so um, which is fine. But I wanted to find some things that played with Indian flavors but resembled American you know more um, familiar formats. So because um, this is how this is what I like to serve at a dinner party is like something that, you know, yeah, is a little bit recognizable, but a little bit Indian. So one of my favorites is the coffee pot the creme, the um, South Indian coffee pat the creme, because if you've ever had South Indian coffee, it's really like del- so delicious. It's very rich. Um, it's sweet. And they make the they put chicory in it too, but it enriches the flavor a lot. It gives it almost like a chocolatey edge. That's South Indian coffee. So you can actually buy Café du Monde coffee and use that for this recipe to create the the coffee um, essence. And then we add a little cardamom too for another Indian layer and um yeah and then you make you make a plat de creme uh, you know in the typical sort of french way but it has this 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 incredible essence of indian coffee
1: is there another dessert that you're really proud of that you've sort of taken the flavors of india and made them so familiar with desserts that we know
2: um, yeah, there is another one too. There's the the chocolate tart, the chocolate tart with cashew crust in the crust, which is just, a, you know, like a simple butter crust. I put some some garam masala. Um, it's a South Indian style garam masala. So it's got some star anise in it and fennel. So it's got like a sweet edge and, and cashews as well in the crust. So it's kind of, you know, got that like richness and um, Indian flavor. And then I, I uh, do a really nice, rich, you know, cream and, and chocolate filling that has more garam masala in it too. So it's, yeah, it just looks like a chocolate tart. But once you get into it, it's got this like, ooh, sweet spice thing happening, not too heavy handed, but just like, ah, it's there. And it sort of intrigues you. So I love that one too.
1: Wow. That sounds absolutely delicious. Everything in this book um, is going to make People who read it want to eat more Indian food and you're making it more accessible. And thank you for that. Maya Kaimal. your new book, Indian flavor every day. It is just a beautiful book, fabulous recipes. Thank you for spending some time with me talking about it today.
2: Thank you. It was such a pleasure.
0: I love. Yeah, I mean, what do I? What do you want to say about Maya? I don't know. I mean, uh, she, well, she's articulate. She's entrepreneurial. I have to have her and her husband over for dinner. I know. I'm she's, not making them food. She's kind day. of the whole package. I mean, yeah. she's aggressive, entrepreneurial businesswoman, cookbook author. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. it's a great story that she's got, and um, I love that book. So. Before we get to our last segment of this podcast, let me just say that it would be great if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast. If you rate it, you drop right down on the Apple, Google, um, Spotify menus. You can find out how to give it stars. <laughs> can I ask for five? Five would be great. And if you drop a comment, that would be fantastic. Even just nice. Podcasts are really enjoying it. Thank you. It really helps. It's a way to support this otherwise unsupported podcast. As is traditional, our last segment, What's making us
1: happy in food this week? Canadian ice wine. Yum. We had some friends over for dinner. Uh, so
2: specific. Well,
1: last week we had some friends over for dinner, and one of our friends, her kids, one of her kids lives in Toronto. And so every time she comes home, they stop at Duty Free, and she gets all these bottles of ice wine. Toronto. Wait, stop. <laughs> Love Toronto. Bruce and I spent some
2: time.
0: Is Toronto making you happy in food this week? Oh gosh, no. But I just don't want to say. But Bruce and I spent some time late last year in Toronto, and we ate ourselves into oblivion. If you want to have an excellent food trip, let me recommend Toronto. Okay, so ice wine.
1: So she brought this bottle of Innis to have uh, after dinner. With I had made a prime rib for dinner, and I made Mark made three pies for dessert. I did. And I opened this Innis and it was absolutely delicious delicious um, in fact Passover is coming up and I was making haroset for Passover and I put a little splash of this inniskillin that was left into the haroset because you have to put some sweet wine so it is a delicious thing and it's making me happy. And you're listening to this it was recorded before Passover. Oh yeah we Passover done. After Passover <laughs> but there you are. Rosh Hashanah is coming. That's,
0: <laughs> <laughs> we record them. What's ha- making me happy in food this week is a recipe from Maya Kaimal's book. It's a, it's a recipe that I picked out of the Book when Bruce got the book, and it's a recipe for ground turkey and sweet potatoes and peas. And we had it; we actually had it twice this week. We got it one night, and then we had it for less leftovers. And um, this is here's a shocker for you: we had it over white rice the first night and brown rice the second night. And I liked it over brown rice even better. Yeah, than I white did too. Rice. Well, I made it over
1: basmati rice the first night, and basmati rice is delicious and mm-hmm. it's lovely. Uh, it's a very dry rice. It's a very long grain. It's sweet. You're- Pakistani basmati is yeah.
0: super long
1: grain, and then we had it the second night over a medium grain brown rice, which the texture is not as dry. It's almost chewy, mm. um, and it's really delicious. Not as sweet, so the sweetness of the curry balanced so beautifully with the brown rice. I agree with you. I liked it better with brown rice. I, I,
0: it was a delicious dish. It was a little shocking: ground turkey, potatoes, sweet potatoes. Uh, peas
1: jalapenos onions
0: curry but and it wasn't a coconut it wasn't a creamy curry no
1: coconut it was fresh tomatoes yeah
0: yeah
1: there were fresh tomatoes and start again no it wasn't there were fresh tomatoes in it which broke down into a bit of a sauce and it was mm-hmm. almost—I had—I didn't want to say this, but it sort of like was a Southern Indian sloppy Joe in a way. Well,
0: yeah, I kept thinking about it as some kind of weirdly curried stir fry, yeah. um, but it—it it was. Really delicious. Bruce made uh dried apricot and cucumber raita, you know, with yogurt to go on top of it. Even Maya
1: says in the even even Maya says in the book that one of the nice things to do with it is to have it as the base of a shepherd pie. So you oh, put that yeah, in a baking pan that. and cover it with mashed white potatoes and then rebake it. So there's lots of things you could do with this. It's really delicious. It, it is a delicious recipe.
0: So that's our podcast for this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being on this journey with us. We really appreciate it. We know that the podcast landscape is incredibly crowded with 50,000 podcasts coming online every day we are absolutely honored that you would be part of this with us
1: and we hope you will download another episode of cooking with bruce and mark next week and the week after and the week after that and we'll see you back for another episode of cooking with bruce and mark